Welcome to the Daily Energy Markets podcast, where we take a look at what's moving today's headlines and ask why and what's next, especially OPEC's potentially major news this week. Is it a soft shift in direction? Is it a hard strategic handbrake turn? We're going to find out with our brilliant speakers. And also, what are the updates to the energy strategy in the UAE, OPEC's third biggest producer, which includes its national hydrogen strategy? So there's a lot to cover in the next 30 minutes. My name is Michelle Meinecke. I'm a director at Gulf Intelligence, and I'm delighted to be joined by Robin Mills. He's the CEO at Kamar Energy. Mike McGlone, he's a senior macro strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. And Paul Hicken, he's the editor and chief at Petroleum Economist. So as dawn broke this morning on the last day of the eighth OPEC international seminar in Vienna, the cuts by Saudi Arabia and Russia, as we know, the world's two biggest exporters, amounts to 1.5% of global supply and bring the total pledge by OPEC to 5.16 million barrels a day. Paul, you're on the ground. It'd be great to hear from you the sense of the room and, and how you found the week. I believe you've been there since Tuesday. Yes, right. Um, well, it's been, it's been five years since the last seminar, the you know, COVID break in between. And it's been, you know, they've come out in a real show of strength, uh, OPEC Plus. It's not just in terms of um, the messaging, which was pretty much, you know, on point in, from, from the Saudis in terms of, um, in terms of, you know, how much, how, how much, you know, they talked about not just standing, but growing. They talked about doing whatever is necessary rather than whatever it takes. You know, they really upped the messaging in terms of, that they aren't for turning here, that, that, you know, this extra million barrels a day, this extra 500,000 barrels a day su- supply cut, not a production cut, but supply cut. I mean, the Saudi energy minister talked up talked up that supply cut and said, actually, it's, it's a voluntary cut from Russia. They didn't have to do it. And the fact is that the supply is easier to, to measure. I mean, there's been a lot of cynicism in from analysts in the market about whether Russia would actually deliver on on its cuts, it, the evidence hasn't been there so far. But at the same time, um, this was this was OPEC plus really suggesting that they are going to deliver. Um, whether the market reacts in that way, and Mike and others will will probably share their views on that. But but I think from talking to some of the analysts in the room and some of the others on the sidelines, it did feel like that that everyone's waiting to see those deliveries. It's almost like. OPEC Plus, despite the announcements, they're playing catch up. They announced product. They pronounced production cuts for the extra lollipop in July and August. But the market's reacting to negative sentiment now. They talk, the, the Saudis talk about sentiment, but they're reacting to the negative sentiment now. That, that you know, I, I, I work as an economist, and you know, you get the data, and then uh, and then you revise your forecast, you downgrade demand, but. The, the market's reacting ahead of that. It's a leading indicator, and it, it's reacting well ahead of of where the data's going in demand and going well ahead of the Saudi and uh, and Russia cuts. So that seems to be the sort of two different moods in 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 the room. But certainly, um, the, the OPEC, Saudi, and, and, and UAE talking about a bigger group. Um, even the Secretary General talked up that that possibility about the dialogue of a bigger group and the strength, the show of strength they're trying to enforce. Um, so there's certainly a, a strong messaging coming out there. And Mike, from a bigger picture point of view, everything Paul's just mentioned about that show of strength, those two moods in the room, uh, is essentially another step in the maturation as well of OPEC Plus. How do you think in a bigger picture that plays into the energy security 
the energy trilemma situation that's going on and how that's being balanced against the, the climate targets that are being made simultaneously at the moment? Well, the, the bottom line for what you're hearing and seeing from OPEC is there um, and OPEC plus Russia and is very consistent with the bear market. <laughs> they're helping to drive it um, yeah. because they're, they're pointing out the obvious. We all know that crude oil and commodities are in a broad bear market on the back of the biggest pump in, in prices in almost 50 years last year, depends on how you measure it. And it's it's a hangover stage. The question is, where does it end? And I don't see it anywhere, any sign of it ending. This is just consistent activity to expect from a cartel with diminishing diminishing significance in the space. I mean, it might be one third of supply. 10 years ago, they were closer to 40% of total supply. And the world is um, in the world's largest customer used to be US and now is a net exporter. And that, that country is heading towards a recession. And the Fed, virtually all central banks on the planet are still tightened. So I see a, a significant cat and dog, cat and mouse race here, and I don't see an end to it. So I, typically for, I, you know, people are probing for bottoms in the market, like, you know, looking for the average price is expected to be lower this year. I don't see where it's going to come in commodities until you see some form of significant lag to Federal Reserve easing and a recovery from this recession in the U.S. It's probably going to start in this year. Now, yes, that's the recession that every six months keeps going on six months down the line. But the, we, we have the next meeting coming up from the Fed in, on July 26, and they're going to tighten it's at 80% now. And that's the key thing is it's just, it's a lose-lose. And also we have this situation where all risk assets bounced in the first half into a recession is a, is a good to me that the, on the 10 for crude oil is the stock market. Stock market rolls over, everything goes goes down. I think crude oil just follows the lead of natural gas, which went from 10 to two in the US and bounced. I still see crude oil on a path towards $40 a barrel. Brilliant, thank you, Mike. So opposing views to some, some degree there, you know, we've got OPEC show of strength, proactive getting ahead of the data, which in some ways, like I say, shows that the, those signs of maturation to a degree. And then we're sort of talking about, you know, typical behavior from a cartel with diminishing returns, quote, um, which uh, very, you know, different different uh, sides of the coin there. Robin, where, where do you see it? Well, we know the market's been in a, in a bearish mood for some months now, you know, and it's kind of really interesting. And this kind of conflict goes on between the, the views of, say, IEA and OPEC, where, you know, they remain pretty bullish on, on demand in the second half. We're now in the second half, of course. You know, let's see when this uh, this more bullish demand turns up. Um, and, yeah, OK, the recession keeps being postponed, but so does the, the, uh, the, the anticipated surge in demand. Um, but, you know, the, the the overall data, I think, is is, is more mixed, right? It's, um, you know, you can see bright spots as well if you, if you choose to look for them. Um, and, and yet the, the overall positioning of uh, uh, the overall position, the market is, is exceptionally short and ex exceptionally negative. Um, you know, but that gives us in a position where, you know, we could go down, down the road that Micah outlines and that's see a, a significant further drop in prices. You know, or if we had a bit of positive news, we'd see people liquidate the shorts and we'd see, uh, you know, prices go, go higher quite quickly. Um, you know, on the supply side, yeah, you know, these cuts are obviously bearish because uh, they're just signs that the, the so the Saudis and the others are are not seeing the response in the market and having to have make continuing cuts and yet, yet seeing virtually no response on on the price. Um, on the other hand, they are taking supply out of the market, and uh, and U.S. production as well is strong. But you know, next few months is likely to weaken as, as the impact of lower prices and uh, and all food inflation feed, feeds through. Um, 
so the um uh, yeah, the, the supply side in in the in the going out towards the end of the year is not as positive um but you know there's a lot of contrasting news and i think it's really which ones the market choose to focus on and at the moment it's it's, it's focusing very much on the bearish things you know we know sentiment can turn and with that i mean paul what impact do you think this is going to have on other opec non-open players going forward for the rest of the year against against that background that yourself mike and robin have provided what sort of plays do you think we could see in the last six months of this year as we've spoken about you know there's there's been that potential bullish tone that keeps being promised the ever postponed recession as as mike touched upon as well do you think that we could see players other players taking action towards the end of the year and i know the uae have said you know what well, we've done our bits the others have generously stepped in we've done our bit we have no plans as of yet but with opec and opec plus members countries accounting for about 40 percent of global output uh, oil output there's a big chunk of change being affected and in turn the dynamics of the energy security so any step forward in the second half could have quite a big, big impact, especially around COP. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I think from the June meeting, they really did iron out a lot of the difficulties around quotas for the UAE, which was a real stick in the craw for, for them. And and um, and adjusting those process, yes, it left some, some of the African producers slightly uh, unhappy. But at the same time, I think it was everyone, you know, ironing out a lot of those crinkles. Um, Going forward, it's a big question because, like, if as Mike outlined, um, if if there is continuous bearish trend, and in the question of whether does Russia deliver, then it's going to put strains on 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 that relationship at some point down the line. Um, who knows where how that will how that will play out? But what I think is interesting is is you're right. It's it's how quickly this bear market will will potentially turn. You know, when you're in a bear market. It's almost everything you do is kind of bearish. Uh, OPEC takes barrels out the market. It's bearish. It's Russia does supply cut rather than a production cut. It's it's bearish. Um, China takes barrels uh, into buys China buys barrels into storage. It's bearish because it's not demand. And yet we saw the the other side that oh storage is actually less less barrels in storage. That's a sign of uh, of of tightness usually. So there's a kind of like whatever you do in a bear market seems to be seen as negative. But and that's where we're at at the moment. I think it's very been very hard for for Saudi Arabia and OPEC Plus to fight that fight that. And really that's why they're sort of arguing more around the, uh, bringing a price floor in rather than actually you know, stop the leakage rather than actually provide any sort of bullishness. And yeah, we, we really don't know when when that's going to turn because it seems to be, you know, everyone talked about a second, two a year of two halves. It now looks more like a year of 2023 and a bullish 2024 potentially, but but who knows? It says Robin was saying it is almost the way one chooses to look through the prism of the market, you know, which which pair of glasses one picks up on the yeah. bull or bear side. And you, the narrative can almost be adapted to make either work to a degree because um, that pendulum seems relatively stuck in the middle um, at, at, at the moment. I mean, Mike, what are your thoughts on these reports that um, underinvestments in oil and gas, uh, you know, the claims of the disastrous effects of that are exaggerated. Uh, well, I enjoy those narratives that come out in bull markets. And then um, I remember 10 years ago was, oh, we had peak supply and it turned out to be peak demand in the US. Demand peaked over 15 years ago and it's collapsing now compared to um, supply. I mean, that trend is overwhelming. Um, but to me, it's what's happening with crude oil. It's become, it's so much of a 
the global commodity, I mean, there's 70 countries that export crude oil. It's just the, the trying to narrow out the nuances of the supply and demand affecting prices. It's really not the matter anymore. And let me narrow down what typically takes to end a bear market is a lower plateau. Now, I, I use natural gas as an example. It's already done that. And it needs a usually a, a factor with a weaker dollar and a macro, typically demand supply situation. And we're nowhere near that. So that's why I look at this as part of the biggest reset of our lifetimes. We in, in the you know largest country and the one that matters the most in terms of when the Fed moves, we have significant inversion of the curve. We have major indications that's going to be in a, key, a, a recession. The market's just starting to price that way. So I see this as a body in motion that's ex accelerating on the downside. And I love how Robin pointed out shorts. It's so true. That's what happens in bear markets. What you typically have to do is you have to rip out those shorts. I remember seeing it in the trading pits and with my customers. And then you go down. We've seen a lot of examples of that. Of that. But now we're just settling into that area. The market's very comfortable around $70 a barrel on WTI. It's just waiting for that next catalyst. And I don't see how it's going to be positive. Now, the thing is, typically what happens in bear markets, you have to rip out the shorts and it goes down. Now, if OPEC tried that with the, the cut a couple months ago, it did, and then it went back down. So I asked ask myself, what stops this? And I don't know. My key thing I, I like to point out, my key theme for this second half so far is our risk assets cheap. We know the answer to that isn't is is no. And is the Fed and central banks accommodative? And both are no. We still have most central banks still tightening. So that's why the macro is bad. And then the bottom line is virtually all the data out of China continues to trend negative, or at least disappointing, I guess, is the best way to look at it. And when it comes, Robin, to these underinvestment claims in oil and gas and that they're exaggerated, on one side, it's, you know, it's totally exaggerated. There's still a strong flow of funds. Everything's going in the direction it needs to to have a relative state of energy security. That's that in itself being a dangerous phrase. And others saying, you know, Shell's boss said an international in the last 24 hours said an international bidding war for gas last year. So poorer countries, Pakistan, Bangladesh, unable to afford LNG shipments that was instead diverted to Northern Europe, more and more children learning to work and study by candlelight, very much a hearts and minds moment there in his quote. So in, in, a, in a moment where, uh, you know, big oil environmentalists are rare in some cases are on the same page, he's saying very much that it needs to be a just transition, not just what, just for one part of the world. And that means stability of Funds. So, where where do you see this uh, in terms of the underinvest? This is a this is a, a well worn narrative over the last few years, but it still doesn't seem to have any kind of resolution about where we are in terms of is the is there a dangerous level of underinvestment in oil and gas still? Yeah, look, this is a super complicated topic, and there's different bits of it to, to unpick. Um, you know, let's look at look at the oil side for a start. Okay, so OPEC, you know, as as Michael Mind just now has you know somewhat over thirty percent market share. But add in OPEC plus in Europe about fifty five percent. That's a higher market share than, than OPEC on its own ever had. Now OPEC plus is not as cohesive as as OPEC was at times. But anyway, as a group, it's it's you know, more than more than half the market. Um, and uh, you know, if, if these countries really saw very strong demand ahead, they would all be investing very actively. You you would think. And of course, the fact is that, that they're not. You know, Saudi Arabia has some for it for it. It's you know, relative to its reserves, quite modest expansion plans and on a, on a fairly extended time, time scale. The UA has you know, fairly aggressive expansion plans, which, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment. Um, Iraq has plans and Iraq will, will creep up, but, you know, Iraq has a lot of problems as well. Um, and that's kind of it. You know, not, none of the other members have, have, have significant and credible plans to, to grow production. 
Um, and then, of course, uh, Russia, you know, is uh, production is probably going to decline in the long term, the impact of sanctions and, and so on. Um, so, you know, we're not seeing that these countries are, are investing very heavily into, into a very strong demand future. Um, now, you could say that's part of the underinvestment because OPEC, will, will, you know, OPEC very often blames underinvestment, you know, and yet, yet OPEC is in a better position to invest than, than, uh, than, than anybody else. So, um, you know, I, I think it's just OPEC, you know, not really believing their, their own rhetoric on this. Um, but then you look outside the, the OPEC plus group, you know, who are these people who are underinvesting? Where is the where are the major oil reserves, you know, that, that people are not investing in? You know, US, US is still pretty active. And, and if prices are right, US production will will uh, will will increase and we'll see investments. You've got the odd hot spots like Guyana, you've got you know emerging places like Namibia, but then you've got you know, mature basins. Um, and where, you know, honestly, is is there a lot of room for, for new investment in, in in the UK North Sea, let's say? Um, no, I mean, not not really, no. Um, and, and even if there was some investment, you know, it would only be very, very marginal increase in production. Norway just approved, I think, 15 or 18 new projects. So, you know, Norway is one that has potential and Norway is investing, you know, quite actively as, as one of the mature producers. So it's kind of hard to see, you know, where, where exactly is this underinvestment in, in oil outside the OPEC plus, outside the OPEC plus group? Um, if you talk about gas, you know, no, I don't really see an, an underinvestment there. Um, you know, we're seeing a very strong wave of new LNG coming on the market in 2026, 2027 onwards. Um, and um, and there's a, a decent kind of hopper of projects after that if the market looks good for the for the 2030s. Um, now, everyone's supply demand balance is different, but I, I don't see a particular concern there in the in the not in the medium term uh, anyway. Um, so gas doesn't, doesn't look, look too problematic. Um, and then if you look longer term, I think, you know, the question is, OK, so where, where do you see long term oil and gas demand going? Do you think that gas demand is going to continue growing um, out into the 2030s and 2040s and that there'll need to be a strong time for strong investment? Um, or do you believe in it, we're in an energy transition world where demand is, is dropping very significantly? Well, you know, we that's, still have that's, time. To, yeah, that's we still have time. Rhetoric, isn't it, Robin, that, that it's dropping yeah. and that it's going to be tailing off. But as you say, the numbers don't necessarily always always show that. Paul, from your perspective, do you think that the, you know, this, this narrative of there's an under as Robin just pointed out there's where it's needed there is there is invest there is capital do you think that this this narrative that's very much put you know is, is increasingly being pushed there's re there's reports out this week saying the same thing that there's you know it's, it's fears over the money grab fear it's it's more based on the a, a fearful sentiment that that level of cash is going to be going to climate action whereas actually on the ground change hasn't been dramatically affected or, or are you seeing something different I think it's probably two things we haven't met, we haven't touched upon, which is one, we talk about sometimes things from a Western prism, uh, but actually, you know, like, talk about where investment's going to be. It's it's not really blanket. You know, what about Africa? What about some parts of South America? What parts of Asia? You know, the the the, the perception of um, ESG and the sustainability is is very different. Some of these some some of the poorer communities there, you know, people coming out of off of wood. And there's still lots of coal in China and Indonesia and India still make up a huge part of the energy mix. Uh, so I think, you know, you have to be careful in terms of what where investment may be, because there could still be a lot of investment in oil and gas and it would still just go to some of these some of these regions uh, potentially. So until they make some a huge leap forward in, in the technology that comes with the transition. Um, and I think, um, you know, when we've when we've seen uh, the you know, it was interesting uh, at the OPEC plus uh, at the seminar uh, to yesterday, which was the fact is that this was a seminar that had, you know, huge panels devoted to gas. 
the whole day today is going to be on mm. any transition. You know, there is a lot of there is a lot of investment going on in in terms of the especially I think carbon capture and storage, you know, hydrogen, but carbon capture and storage has been is seen as the big one. And whether you can make tech big mass scale CCS, CCUS projects, because that would be a game changer for the oil and gas industry. You know, you know, if you're really gonna if 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 the world is serious about net zero, then then realistically oil and gas is to be a big part of that mix for for some time and getting it cleaner more efficient and the way we use oil and gas is going to be so much more crucial and i think some of those debates still need to be had as much as you know where renewables is going to come from what where, where do we get the clean energy from so i think there's several parts of this debate that still are not quite on the same page it's it's amazing that the iea and the opec plus haven't been on the same page and had these kind of schisms because actually from the opec plus opec messaging and the iea messaging it's pretty much similar we need oil and gas, but we need an orderly transition. And that seems to be some of the message, but getting there and understand from policymakers, from the industry, it's it's a tricky one. And I think I just want to touch on one other key point in this in this messaging, which is rate of return. You know, the, the reason why a lot of these companies are, are not investing is because of the risk of stranded assets, the risk of what's a return for investors as well. If the rate of return is there, if the prices are there, and you've seen this with some of the messaging from the, the IOCs more recently, is that actually, you know, you know, BP, Shell, others have all said, you know, we need to keep shareholders happy, which obviously that's been a lot about ESG guidelines. But at the same time, there's also... If rate return is there, then you probably will see some more appetite in in hydrocarbons, especially gas, because that's the, that's been a sort of political football in terms of is it a transition fuel? Is it hydrocarbon? You know, it is a hydrocarbon. It is a transition fuel, but how much can it be part of a, a cleaner mix as well? And, in terms, and one, and one would argue that that football game has been going on for way too long now. We've been having that same conversation about gas for for several several years. Um, yeah. And the climate agenda and, and, and the, the rate of net zero just simply doesn't allow for this luxury of time. And I'd argue the same for CCS, again, which I've been hearing about and is being lagging for years and years and years. But unfortunately, we just we have to move on to the, um, the survey now. Sorry, Paul, just just looking at the clock. Um, so. Just. This is a show and tell. This is a show don't tell oil market. It wants to see stroke feel supply cuts before a price reaction. So that's quite interesting. That's going over to what you were saying, um, Paul, about, about how the market in terms of that proactivity at the moment. So Paul submitted, thank you for your participation um, as soon as we get those answers through. And then hopefully we can go over and, and talk about the UAE's uh, national energy strategy. Um, ladies and ladies who organize this and have, have all the keys of power, we could have the answers on the poll whenever you get a moment. That would be great. Mike, what are your thoughts on that survey question, please? I, I wish there was an answer that I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 I honestly remember like taking the CFA and stuff. That was one of the ones I'd have to just guess. Now, to me, I think the key thing is that what Paul mentioned um, is um, technology. And I think all the get it. I mean, your typical oil executive now can drive, drive a Tesla. 10% of auto sales are electric EVs, are EVs and, and China is 20% and it's rapidly accelerating. I drove an EV, I bought one 10 years ago. They're great. So I think that's the key thing that, and that's happening here. OPEC is just a kind of, it's it's becoming less significant in, in, a, in the midst of a paradigm shift. And people usually don't realize we're in the midst of a paradigm shift when you're in the middle of it. And then one thing I've really enjoyed uh, hearing lately is two words, trust Russia. 
I mean, that's a complete oxymoron. <laughs> and there's only one person anymore. It's Mr. Putin. It's like in China, it's Mr. Z. The geopolitics here are very negative for oil prices in macro. Trust Russia, yes. So these words are the two that you keep hearing quite, quite often. Oh, it's just, well, we know, and it's, you know, in commodities, it's really learned commodities from China. Just ignore what they say, watch what they do. And um, Russia needs money. And what's the best way for them to get that? Indeed. And also, that's a good, it's a good lesson for life, actually. Actions speak a lot louder than words. And we need to see that so much, not just with the energy security side, but also with uh, the road to net zero and the climate action. Robin, ah, fantastic. Uh, show don't tell markets wants to feel supply cuts before price reaction. 87% agree. Okay, great. Thank you very much for that, ladies. Robin, as we're nearing the end. I just want to get your thoughts on the UAE's updated energy strategy 2050, which obviously for a daily energy show sounds like a very, very long way away, but it impacts exactly what's happening right now in Vienna. It impacts what's happening um, with the, uh, you know, the natural national hydrogen strategy, the UAE wanting to become a primary exporter by 2031. It was 2030, shifted a little bit, and still very, very ambitious plans. What are your key takeaways from, from the news? Yeah, well, look, I think the plans are that they're, they're important because if they show that a major oil producer can come up with some credible plans for, for decarbonizing and while keeping its economy solid, um, then that's encouraging for others in the UAE, you know, along with a place like Norway, they probably pick those two out as, as leaders in this respect. Um, that's a very important signal to others that, 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 that this can work. If you look at the renewables plans, I think they're, you know, they're fairly uh, moderate, to be honest. And if you look at the, the current plans that are already in process and then, you, you know, the um, this target of tripling renewables by, by 2030, they are well on the way to do that. And I expect they will exceed that by, by a considerable margin. Um, so they're, they're, I think they're, they're leaving a bit in reserve that, that they can they can go, they know they can go beyond that. Um, the hydrogen strategy is is important. Um, you know, we, we've been waiting a long time for it. So, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously been delayed as they've, they've um, incorporated new information and it's pretty fast evolving market. Now it's, now now the, the principles that are out, that's again important, okay, can, uh, major Gulf countries, North African countries as well, become major hydrogen exporters um, as another kind of pillar of their energy economy. So yeah. there is a strategy there. And I think really key part of the focus is that, okay, is exports? Yes. But also how much will hydrogen be used in the domestic economy? Um, there's, there's, there's a very big uh, opportunity there as well. Is that strategy as detailed as you would hope it would be? The reason I ask that is I've read over 35 national hydrogen strategies worldwide now, and the level of detail between them varies hugely. Um, and some is it's just a, a fancy name for a few pieces of paper. Others are far more advanced, and we, and we know who, who the, the ones who are far more advanced are. From your perspective, how uh, how detailed is the UAE national hydrogen plan? Are you are you happy with, or are you confident that it's, um, you know, it's comprehensive enough to really give people the signposts they need in the market? I think what you're seeing, to be honest, is tip of the iceberg, and there's a lot of stuff uh, that is not, not public, but uh, which, which lies behind this, um, which is not maybe gathered into strategy as such, but is there in terms of individual developments and projects. And I, I think the participants in the market know, know pretty well what's out there and, and what's available, where the opportunities are. Um, now, maybe there can be more of a public signpost in that regard, but, uh, but I, think the, uh, I think the key players know pretty well what, what's out there. And Mike, what are your thoughts on the timing of this release? You know, obviously, Al Missouri is, is in Vienna. The UAE is, is a very front and center spokes. Uh, country for everything that's happening over in Vienna at the moment, and then the, the you know the updated energy strategies released along with 
a long-awaited strategy on hydrogen uh, roughly you know within the same week that timing seems very intentional what what are your thoughts well for me it's 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 a constant barrage now um and i think what most analysts are underestimating is how rapidly this technology advancing is advancing and how rapidly it's, it's replacing here's one thing i enjoyed about about um, hydrogen is I lear learned at a Bitcoin conference how easy it is for hydrogen to be put into a, a, a natural gas pipeline up to 30%. And hydrogen is, is one key fact for clean hydrogen is one key thing is that's pressured aluminum for, ever, for history. It's a cost of electricity. That's collapsing now that we're getting past COVID just with technology. I mean, I installed solar in my house 10 years ago. I have an electric car. That's really old technology. Just leap for like the next 10 years. Humans are, this is what commodities, humans have always done with commodities. They find better ways to replace it and do things. And hydrogen is a massive big thing. I also like to point out when people talk about lack of um, um, investment in, in this country, we get almost 50%, 15% of our unleaded uh, gas now from ethanol, from corn. I own a farm and we still can barely break even for farmers in, with corn because of prices are low. It's just, the, the total amount of corn you could produce in an acre of land in this country has doubled in the last 50 years. That's just technology moving, moving really fast. So I think the key thing to remember in commodities is always be involved certainly in energy with the producers and not the underlying commodities. They will go down over time because of things that you're talking about. It's just it's, 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 it's the way the wave is, is rising. As a quick side note on that with the U.S., the level of potential for hydropower is absolutely astonishing um we did an interview a couple of years ago and along the lines of 95 percent of the hydro potential um in the us is still untapped if accurately and effectively used it could provide up to 50 percent of the country's uh, renewable energy it's what better incentive than a war <laughs> well there's going to be a war of war of water if we don't do something pretty pretty soon mike paul robin thank you very much for joining us we spoke about how opex had a show of strength this week in vienna We've got paul who's on the ground in vienna so very much feeling the sentiment there talks about hangover stage don't see it ending typical behavior from a group with diminishing returns and Again, that's that's a narrative that we, we keep returning to as well. The ever postponed recession. Let's see what happens in Q2. Not sure. Paul mentioned as well about, you know, maybe this will just be the year, of not, not of two halves, but actually just the year of 2023. And 2024 is where we may see that pendulum move a little bit more. Mike saying about the oil body of market, the body of motions accelerating on, on the downside and and um, and Robin giving us insight there into the UAE's energy strategy and that long awaited uh, hydrogen hydrogen detail as well. So um, very exciting to see what's going to happen with that. And also timing wise, interesting in the lead up to COP as well. So we've run out of time, Mike, Paul, Robin, thank you very much and uh, have a good week.